My name is Joel Oslin, and if you're new to this podcast, there is an accompanying blog as well over at justforaclosterwalk.com, and I encourage you to go uh, check that out when you have a chance. And if you like that, uh, or if you like this uh, podcast as well, feel free to subscribe or like or leave a comment. I love to interact with you uh, if possible and want to make the uh, content as relevant as possible. Uh, Today we're actually going to be starting off a little bit of kind of a mini-series based around this uh, this whole thought of context. And it's, uh, it's actually kind of grounded in, in uh, an old expression I heard several years back. And I think it's incredibly insightful. The, uh, the quote goes like this, a text out of context becomes a pretext for a proof text. A text out of context becomes a pretext for a proof text. And a proof text, if you're not familiar with that one, is basically uh, interpreting into the text whatever you want it to say. So essentially, you're not letting it speak for itself. You're not letting, in the case of uh, with Scripture, you're not allowing Scripture to read for itself or to uh, or to instruct you, but rather you are you know, making it say whatever you want it to say. So uh, text out of context, if we're not observing the context and and learning kind of what's going on behind the scenes, uh, you know, who is the original audience it was written to? What was their context? What was their culture? What was their, you know, the, the hot topic issues of their day? Or what were even the things that they would have known as um, kind of ready knowledge that maybe we don't in a different culture or a different context or a different day and age? And so especially when we look at the scripture, we look at, you know, the life of uh, Jesus's earthly ministry, you know, and we, we look at a lot of the conversations that he had uh, with various people, with his disciples and with the different teachers and with tax collectors and, you know, different governing officials. And we kind of get this, maybe a little bit of this bizarre uh, conundrum that can come across us. You know, we, we look at it and it's like, oh, wow, Jesus says, you know, love your neighbors uh, but also love your enemies as well. And the people are just kind of like, whoa, this guy is out there, you know, and then he might turn to some of the religious leaders and say, you know, hey, uh, the temple is just supposed to be a house of prayer for all the people, but you've turned it into a robber's den. And instead of just kind of, you know, responding to the way that we would expect them to, the people, the the religious leaders actually get furious and they're like, man, we got to, we got to kill this guy. You know, so you start to think like, man, well, those guys way overreacted. What is going on uh, behind the scenes here? Now, there actually have been a number of groups over the years and even currently or presently um, that believe that Scripture is meant only to be read uh, in modern English, that it's only meant to be read at face value and that it's only meant to be understood and applied to our own situations and scenarios today. Um, so this kind of going back to the the original quote there, a text out of context becomes a pretext for a proof text, is really aimed at kind of just presenting the counter perspective of that school of thought. And uh, so I thought it might be a good idea here to take a few uh, a few episodes and just kind of look at some of the texts uh, that we see, you know, both between the uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And just kind of dig a little bit behind the scenes to understand a bit more of maybe who the original audience was and maybe what the, uh, 
the big highlights that they would pull out of the message would have been as well. So the first one we're going to start off with is one that may be a little bit familiar to you. It's towards the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. Um, so from a timeline perspective, Jesus has already come in uh, riding on the donkey on Palm Sunday, and he's already gone into the temple and flipped over the tables of the money changers and, you know, kind of caused that scene there. But this is still before the uh, Passover happens. So this is still before uh, Jesus is arrested, before the trials, before the crucifixion and all of that, of course. Um, so this is actually kind of that week leading up to Passover and Jesus at this point would have been spending a lot of time around the temple. And so there's a, actually a few different gospels that record this. So if you want to kind of follow along, um, you can look in Matthew kind of, you know, 21 through 22, kind of 23, um, kind of spills over a little bit. Uh, Mark 11 and 12 kind of covers it. Luke 20. Um, so feel free to jump in. We'll, we'll jump in between a few of the texts because each of them, you know, highlight a little bit of a different aspect or a different element as well. Most of the text I'm going to be reading out of Mark, however. So if you want to go ahead and get your Bible out there and start out in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 27. So I'm going to go ahead and read through the text first, and then we'll uh, dig in just a little bit to the kind of the behind the scenes context and just see how that presents a little bit more of, I think, a fuller picture or a better understanding of what actually uh, was going on and why the people reacted the way they did. So kind of starting out in verse 27 here, uh, they, so this would be Jesus and his disciples who were traveling, they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they began to say to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? So Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, and if you answer me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. So they began reasoning among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, oh, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, well, <laughs> they were afraid of the people, for everybody considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jumping ahead into Mark chapter 12, uh, down at verse 13. Then they sent, so they being the, uh, the chief priests and the uh, kind of the temple religious uh, authority there, they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to Jesus in order to trap him in a statement. So they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Some Sadducees, who say that there's no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So... 
There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. And last of all, the woman died. <laughs> Don't you love these kinds of stories? In the resurrection, when they shall rise again, which wife shall she be? For all seven had married her. The Sadducees think they're so clever. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scripture? <laughs> or is it because you just don't understand the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are kind of like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read the book of Moses and the passage about the burning bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that all, he had, that all the answers that Jesus had provided were amazing. So he came up and he asked him, what commandment is the greatest? So Jesus answered out of Deuteronomy, the foremost is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, right teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and that there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered him intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. And then we're going to jump over really quickly into uh, Matthew's account. So this then is in Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So Jesus said to them, then how does David in the spirit Call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he a son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anybody dare from that day on to ask him another question. Powerful words. Powerful scripture. So what is going on here in these uh, passages. So of course we've got Jesus around the temple, kind of setting up our context, setting up the scene a little bit. And we see uh, some different groups are coming in and they just start asking Jesus a bunch of these questions. And you definitely get this, this picture, this uh, kind of this impression that most of the questions are coming from a very hostile standpoint. You know, so starting right off with the scribes and the chief priests and the elders coming up and, and just demanding, you know, by whose authority are you doing these things? You know, you can't do that. That's not right. And what I get a kick out of it, so of course, what are they really asking? They're kind of appealing to his, uh, his authority. And so to give you a little bit of a, a uh, background here, it was in rabbinic tradition, it was uh, kind of a practice that for a rabbi to be given authority, it had to be uh, coming from two current voices of authority. So, for example, you might have uh, your 
your teacher, your rabbi that you studied under for years. Um, and then you may also be working under a local synagogue and, you know, you might have a little bit of a pull there as well. And just after studying and kind of paying your dues over the years, um, uh, they may both vouch for you and you could, um, be granted the rabbinic authority. So what I think is, uh, going on here, I think that the uh, religious leaders, I think they had heard about Jesus's baptism and I think they were trying to get Jesus to, uh, to say that God, you know, came down in the form of a dove and, uh, and was his voice of authority. I think they were trying to get him to say that in front of the crowds as a way to make him look a little bit less credible, you know, make him look a little bit crazy, like, oh, yeah, well, God told me I have authority. Um, and so that's what they were looking for. And uh, so instead of that, Jesus, because he's so smart, he goes to John. And, but he doesn't just answer. He doesn't say, well, John and God. <laughs> you know, he's, he says, okay, well, uh, tell you what, you've got a little fun question. How about if I give you a question? And if you answer it, then I'll, uh, then I'll answer your question. He says, okay, so uh, by whose authority did John speak? You know, or was his authority from men or was this from God? You know, and so obviously you kind of get the, the inside scoop of their thoughts. Like, well, man, if we say it was of God, then we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. And if we say it was of men, then the crowds might dislike us because they really like John as well. You know, so Jesus, just in his genius uh, ability to kind of see through uh, what they were really getting after, was able to address uh, their, ultimately their question and uh, answer it in a way that was just incredibly unique. So it's interesting, and we did skip over a little bit of the passage, but Jesus actually kind of as a partial response. He also goes into a couple of uh, parables, and he talks a lot about this um, this king, this leader that goes out and he's throwing a big feast and he says, you know, go out and, and invite all my friends, invite the in crowd, you know, the, 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 uh, VIPs. And, you know, so what happens is all these people refuse to go to the king's party. They're disinterested. They come up with you know, all sorts of lame excuses. Oh, I just, you know, bought a cow and I have to go look at it. Or I just bought a field and I have to go look at it. You know, things that, you know, could definitely happen during business hours and don't need to be preventing somebody from joining a king when he gives you an invitation to a special banquet. So um, very, very just horribly disrespectful. And Jesus basically draws a parallel to the religious leaders and he goes back and kind of reemphasizes um, the the message that he had stated uh, when he drove out the money changers and kind of flipped over the tables and everything, causing that big scene earlier in that same week. And at that point, he was really quoting a lot from Jeremiah 7 and, uh, and some of the passages in Isaiah. But really, he's, he's the, the passages he's referring to were a lot of prophecies against the religious leaders and the temple rulers in Isaiah's day and in Jeremiah's day. And basically, um, God was kind of judging them and saying, hey, because you've been so unfaithful in moderating and facilitating the temple services, because you've just been so wicked and have not had God's priorities on your mind or on your heart, you know, the, uh, the temple is going to be destroyed. Your livelihood, your source of income, your, 
you know, your job, your workplace, um, that's just going to be no more. And so he says, really, because of the religious leaders' uh, unfaithfulness, that's what led to the temple being destroyed. So when Jesus is referencing those things um, in the famous passage, you know, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. I mean, it's he's really kind of making a slap in the face of, hey, you guys are just as wicked as the religious leadership in Jeremiah's day. And if you keep it up, this temple is going to be destroyed just in the same way as it was back then. So, of course, they didn't like that. Um, but that's all the undertones that you don't get to see just at the surface reading of the text. Um, so then what about the second group? Um, you get the second question, you know, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And if you don't know anything about history or about kind of the cultural, uh, social, uh, whatever you want to call it, ranking structure, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, it may not really uh, mean anything to you. Um, but it is really, really fascinating. So the Pharisees, uh, a lot of folks, I don't think have kind of gone back and studied it. They actually descended from a group called the Hasidim. And the Hasidim were essentially kind of a group of pious uh, mercenaries. And they really were, uh, were pretty crucial or pretty uh, uh, central in assisting the Maccabean Revolt or Maccabean Revolt. And uh, that was back in kind of around the 166-ish BC range. And a lot of this was kind of everything had come up to a spearhead because around uh, 167 BC, the uh, the temple had actually been desecrated. They had uh, set up a statue of Zeus inside the temple and they were burning uh, swine's flesh uh, and sacrifices in the temple. So they completely just defiled it. And so that was one of the uh, the straw that, that broke the camel's back, you know, and the, and the Hasmoneans, the, uh, the the Maccabeans, they all they all said, okay, enough's enough. We gotta we've got to reclaim this temple. We've got to purify it, kind of get it back. And so, with the help of the Hasidim, they uh, were able to kind of reclaim, recleanse, and then rededicate the temple, uh, which you do see uh, kind of a famous. Uh, celebration out of that. They call it the Feast of Lights or the Festival of Lights. Um, and of course, nowadays we call that uh, Hanukkah. So there you go. There's a fun little tie-in. So the Hasidim um, down the road kind of turned into this group called Pharisees. And really their kind of their central priority, their, their original kind of core uh, values and their core doctrine and belief was you know, hey, we put ourselves in this bad position. Our unfaithfulness uh, to God over the years is what resulted in us being led into captivity and the reason that we don't have our own autonomous, freestanding government structure anymore. So they essentially um, were kind of this, you almost might want to think of it as like lay pastors. They were this group of people that were uh, not necessarily official religious leaders. They weren't, you know, temple workers. They weren't um, associated in that vein, uh, but they kind of became lay pastors and just a popular people uh, because they really wanted to encourage the people to get back to uh, being faithful uh, to God in the first place. So kind of trying to fulfill the uh, the old law and the, and the covenant and uh, also the commands um, given to the prophets over the centuries, the ones that basically Israel never followed um, in really in its uh, independence and its autonomy. So 
So they were actually a pretty, uh, a pretty fantastic group as far as just being very, um, very nationalistic. You know, they had a great pride in Israel, but they also just really had a great uh, pride and high value on scripture and the application of scripture. Um, so really, really just an incredibly valued and cherished and admired group um, that kind of stood the test of time over the years. And um, so very, very, very popular among the people, a lot more so than, you know, the, the official religious leadership and the temple leaders, uh, so forth. Um, so the Pharisees were very much, uh, Puritans in that sense. Now the Herodians, on the other hand, they were actually a, a little bit more of a political group. So the uh, Herodians were really big fans. This is where they get the name. They were, um, kind of fans of Herod, if you're familiar with them. And they, uh, they were essentially of the belief that if they avoided any kind of disruptions, if they avoided any uprisings, um, and just kind of kept their head low, that maybe over time, Rome, you know, the governing uh, authority over everything at that point, uh, that eventually they would say, hey, you know, you little Israelites, you're doing a really good job over here. We're just going to give you more autonomy. We're going to take our hands further off. And so the Herodians, that was kind of their, their goal was, you know, hey, if we can show, if we can prove that we are able to, to not make a big fuss and not cause a bunch of stink, not have a bunch of rebellions and, and uh, uprisings, you know, that we'll, uh, we'll be given more political authority um, to become an autonomous nation again. So what's fascinating is at this point, these two groups uh, actually joined together to ask Jesus a almost an impossible question. Um, so they ask him about, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? So why is that so challenging if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful, pay Caesar? Well, then all the, all the Puritans would say, well, you know, Jesus is, you know, just another one of those political guys. You know, he would have lost a lot of the respect of the crowds and the Pharisees would have had a lot of reason to, to kind of call him out and say like, oh, well, this guy, you know, he's, He's just trying to please people. He doesn't really have any, you know, convictions about uh, obeying God's word and his command. But then on the other side, if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, then the Herodians are nervous because, you know, the, the Romans are, are just around the corner and could just as easily say, oh, that sounds like somebody's trying to stir up a rebellion and it sounds like we need to come in and crush you guys and, and tighten the reins rather than give you a little bit more leniency. Um, so there was kind of these two underlying motives and, uh, and really either option would have put Jesus in a pretty rough spot. So what's interesting is his response is just absolutely fascinating. Uh, Jesus in response, he says, okay, uh, bring me a denarius. So what you probably don't know from just the surface of the text is at that point, there had been such a, a stink, such a hubbubaloo raised about the, uh, using the denarius, kind of the official Roman denarius, because it had an inscription of Caesar on the coin. And a lot of the Puritans, you know, a lot of the Pharisees, a lot of the righteous uh, Israelites were considered that just a almost an abomination in a sense. They said, you know, this is basically a graven image, you know, and so they were kind of pulling again from Moses and, and the law and say, hey, for us to even, you know, be using this thing is is very, uh, very disrespectful. 
So they made a big enough point about it over the years um, that they're actually able to to lobby and get an alternative uh, coin made. So they were able to actually get a uh, uh, a separate denarius that would spend just as well. It had the same value, and it still had the same inscriptions uh, to Caesar, but this one, it did not have Caesar's image on the coin. So both of those were very much in uh, circulation at the time. So I kind of get a kick out of it that when uh, when Jesus has, asks them to present a coin, to present a denarius, the guys that are you know trying to look so pious and righteous were able to only present him with one that did have Caesar's inscription on it. So that was uh, that was a little bit of a zing there, um, but it did really provide just this beautiful insight. Jesus says, "Okay, well, whose whose image is on this? Oh, well, it's Caesar's." Okay, well, give to Caesar what's his. Give to God what's his. So you almost get this picture of like this association. If Caesar's image was on the coin, well, whose image is on you? What does it look like to render unto God what is God's? So Jesus brilliantly satisfies both underlying uh, concerns and assumptions and uh, and comes up with a, a answer and a solution that just is absolutely, absolutely genius. Um, the Sadducees, their question, I think, is a little bit more straightforward. They're just kind of trying to trap them in this silly little uh, question about um, a hypothetical scenario about the resurrection, which they didn't even believe in. Um, so Jesus just kind of <laughs> shakes it off, you know, and he responds to him kind of the same way that he does with the with the priests and the um, the temple leaders and so forth. And believe it or not, if you didn't know, the Sadducees actually were a group of the uh, the religious leaders of the temple uh, priests. So they were just a certain group that had a different doctrine. But So he responds to them the same way. He says, you really don't know what you're even asking about. Um, but then he also uh, answers their question, you know, because they there might have been somebody in the crowd that was genuine about the question and, and just really wanted to know. Um, even though that doesn't, we don't get the impression that that was genuine for the, uh, for the Sadducees. So, uh, ultimately he gets back to, um, kind of quoting God speaking from the burning bush to Moses and really just bringing it home with, he's the God of the living. And then the fourth question from the scribe is, was actually a pretty popular question of the day. Um, a lot of Pharisees and rabbis, uh, it was one of the questions they just like to ask and kind of have ongoing conversations about it, discussions and debates and things like that. Um, so you almost get this this impression when it starts out that um, this guy was like, hey, you know, I've heard all these different thoughts about what is the greatest command. I'd be curious, what is your thought? Because you've been answering all these other guys just incredibly uh, insightfully and, and brilliantly. I would be curious to get you to weigh in on this popular question of the day. You know, which is the greatest command? And so I love, you know, just this Jesus responds um, from Deuteronomy 6, you know, and, and the Lord our God is one and, and worship him with all the heart and soul and mind and strength. Uh, but then he adds, of course, the second one to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the scribe just kind of leans in and he gets excited and he says, yes, this is true. It's even more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know, so you get this picture that this guy this scribe really was was 
chasing after the heart of God. He understood in the prophets when it says, burnt offerings and sacrifices I have not required. That's not what it was about. I've always been seeking after a heart that is earnest and true, and seeking reconciliation and restoration in uh, the original created order of my creation. So you get this beautiful, beautiful picture there. Um, and then I love it after this is all done. So this whole group is still there. You get this picture that there's still all the, the priests. There's still the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, uh, and the scribes. And, of course, all the regular people that would have been there just uh, listening in because it was a fascinating conversation. And so Jesus, when everybody's there, he's, he jumps out with his own question. He says, well, now I've got, I've got one for you. How is it that they call the Messiah the son of David when David was that had uh, referred to the Messiah as his Lord? You know, and so you think of that as a little bit of an odd question, uh, but it, this one's actually pretty easy because sonship in their culture would have referenced or, you know, had the connotation that the son was lesser than or was subservient to the father or the ancestor. So Jesus is kind of asking, how can the Messiah simultaneously be lesser and greater? So I do find it kind of interesting, um, you know, a little bit later on, Jesus makes a statement, um, before Abraham was, I am. So it almost makes me think, you know, maybe here he's kind of setting the stage uh, for that statement that he's going to be using um, just a, a couple of days later. And it's uh, it's really this picture that, because he was fully man, the son of David, and is fully God, the Lord of David, uh, you know, for us now, after the resurrection, this all makes a lot of sense, but to the people that were hearing it at the time, it would have just blown their mind. They would have said, well, I have no idea what in the world kind of question is this? How can he be simultaneously lesser than and greater too? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, David. So absolutely genius, genius responses. Um, and, uh, and of course, after that, nobody dared ask him any more questions. So, uh, so you do see just this picture that not only was Jesus fully well engaged with the questions themselves, but he was also interested in a lot more than just that. He was also interested in addressing the underlying concerns and the underlying contexts of the people that were asking the questions. And when we consider that, when we even try to uh, apply or translate a lot of the uh, takeaways and the applications into our own lives, um, I think understanding the original context makes it a lot easier and a lot more direct for us to apply it to our own context, to our own stories. So that's where we'll end it for today. I uh, hope this has been helpful. Feel free to, again, leave a comment or like or subscribe. And uh, also a reminder that if you uh, have a few minutes to head over to justforacloserwalk.com and check out the blog as well, um, you'll get to see a little bit of some different entries there. So I hope you have yourselves a marvelous week and we'll look forward to picking up on our context on the next episode.